This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. At The Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that's built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we are examining the stories that make no sense. We're probably going to ruin the Bible for some of you as we talk about old stories of the Old Testament and a few in the New Testament and give some new perspectives that may go against what you learned on your flannel graphs in Sunday school. But by doing so, we hope to offer some insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not fabricating anything as many have done. We're just giving some information and some ideas and references, which our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So this is our thinking space where we are presenting these thoughts. And tonight we are making our best attempt to explain very practical thoughts and theology to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our Give page. But more importantly, we want to hear from you and engage with you. And we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. So we value your feedback, your questions, your your ideas, and we're excited to build a community around a shared exploration of new perspectives called a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, Sherea and Jake, thanks for joining this evening. And we want to continue this mini series, which is turning into a series, but a series on the Bible. What we've been doing is we've been going over the major stories. And tonight we are in the book of Exodus, the character of Moses. We're going to talk about who this person is and the narrative that's built around this person's life and what it means theologically and also philosophically to the Jewish people, to Christians, and forward. So we are excited to go over this story. What we're doing with these stories is we're rethinking these stories, like the story of Noah or the story of Genesis, and thinking at them from maybe a 30,000-foot view, but also different angles and different perspectives, maybe giving some different thoughts and ideas. We do not believe that many of these stories that we're covering are historical events in time. They might be historical people, they might be historical places, but not necessarily the event itself. These have great probability that they are narrated stories, they're narratives that have a deeper meaning. And that's what we're looking for is a deeper meaning. We think that when you are focused so much on the historicity of something, that whether the ark was built in this fashion and it met these dimensions or what have you, that you sometimes will lose, many times will lose the greater meaning of the story. 
where it just becomes kind of an object in time versus something that is nurturing to our souls. So that's why we're doing this. And we're going to start. So Sharia Jake, why don't you take this, lead this out, our summary of some major ideas from our previous podcast that we went through the book of Exodus. So if you're interested in this and a deeper dive of probably about 15 weeks of podcasting, you can look back and you can, you can, um, in our, in our, well, maybe you go to YouTube or one of those and you can look through our series, um, our series lineup, and you can find the book of Exodus and the character of Moses there for a deeper dive. But tonight we're just going to summarize, give some major points, look at some, look at some deeper meanings and theologies within the book and give potentially moving forward and tying the, the law and then the new Testament all together with the book of Exodus. So Sharia Jake, Take it from here. Summarize some things for me, and then we'll popcorn it around, and we'll see where we end up. Okay. Well, I think from the book of Exodus, specifically Moses, uh, the most important character of all Jewish heritage and antiquity is revealed. And so you have Moses goes into an ark, goes to uh, becomes Pharaoh's uh, consort-ish, and then leaves after a crime's committed, it's in the desert for a certain time, then comes back and leads God's people to the promised land. And so you have the most important character of all Jewish heritage is Moses. Trey, you want to go, go ahead. Kevin, did you want to say something? Well, I think it's important to note when it comes to certain stories is the archaeological literary also evidence that surrounds these stories <clears throat> like with abraham there's no evidence that abraham was an actual person was an actual event around a person's life the story of abraham uh, in Genesis. So just like that, or just like, <clears throat> just like, uh, other stories, there's no evidence, um, and really scientific evidence that Genesis and the creation narrative happened the way that the creation narrative happened. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence to that. Same with the book of Exodus and Moses. There's absolutely no evidence that besides one tablet that has been found one marking that there is people from the East. That's it. That's all it says. So, so there's no evidence that the Israelites were actually in Egypt. The Israelites were real people. The Israelites were real tribes, but there was no evidence that Israelites resided in Egypt, archeological evidence and literary evidence. Now the Egyptians were very careful about drawing pictures and carving objects and making sure that obelisks existed to denote or to mark people and places and events that occurred and were. So to, so to have a void of evidence in Egyptian culture speaks loudly that possibly there is more to this story than the person of Moses or the event of the Exodus itself. Yeah. So I mean, we went through Abraham and Abraham's name means father. And mm -hmm. so narratively it fits 
that they'd be the father of the Hebrew people. Right. Moses' name means to pull out or draw out. Mm-hmm. And so the idea here is that it's to pull out or draw the people out of out of bondage. Mm-hmm. The story has more impact than any evidence for historicity. If you look past, did it actually happen or did it not happen? If we can suspend that, then we get more out of the story. And we understand like what the people reading at the time of exile would think of this narrative. Mm-hmm. But you just threatened my Jesus at that point. You know, when, when you start breaking down and looking at evidence or literary evidence, archaeological evidence of whether these stories happen in the way historically that, that they're said to have happened, um, you begin to threaten or break down this idea of the inspired word of God. And when you do that, it becomes very uh, offensive to some, but you throw maybe ourselves or, or others into disillusionment where they become disillusioned about, well, is the Bible real? Is the Bible true? Um, if you break down my Moses, just like you break down my Noah, which is like, we're going to break down you know, my Jonah, uh, you break down my father, Abraham. So, so when you start breaking down those things, all of a sudden Jesus vanishes or Jesus gets uh, threatened. And, and that's unfortunate that we are in that place because I think that we can be in a different place. Uh, the word of God can stay true to itself and its meaning and purpose and I think the Bible can remain intact as inspired and the and and the representation of the word, the words from God, the words of God, um, and God's spirit revealed on earth. So I think that that it can remain true to those ideas as we rethink these stories. Um, it's quite sad that people bank so much on the historical value versus the uh true meaning and spirit of the of the narrative writing sharia do you have anything to to jump in and input on that one um just that it kind of brings up the question of what your faith is in is it in jesus or is it in the text right right and we love the text it's not like we don't love the text um but yeah you can you can get hung up. Yeah, it's it's the faith in that this text actually have to happen in the way right. that it said it did. It's mm. we have a culture that's built on truth telling and truth seeking. Mm. And so we are getting into an election season right now, and so that's gonna be really on the on a, a huge on people's minds and tongues a lot. Mm-hmm. Is what mm-hmm. is true and what's not true trueness here i think as we as we step back a few thousand years into a text trueness is more of of what the reader goes away with and not did this actually happen or not mm-hmm. um this is a this is a text of of how a nation came to be how a religion came to be mm. it's an origin story it's a story of and then origin stories contain lots of myth and so like 
Yeah. Um, in our origin stories, we have of the United States. If you take that, we have the right. idea of like the apple cherry tree. George George Washington and the cherry tree. Thank you. <laughs> and so, like, did that actually? The apple happen? tree was in Genesis. <laughs> that, was, that was a pomegranate. Um, yeah. But you have that story probably didn't happen, but it's our folklore. Mm-hmm. Something that's written down over and over again. Children are read the story. We know it. This is the same concept. Did, did it actually yeah. happen? Maybe. Who knows? Probably not. All those continuum of, of historicity. Yeah, I and think that trying... Go ahead, Tria. Well, that's just only two years or 200 years away from us. Now imagine going back a couple thousand years. Right, right. I think trying to look through ancient eyes is a form of respect. You know, when we look at, okay, what did the Jewish people, the Hebrew people mean when they wrote these texts down? I think that's a, that's a sign of honoring uh, the people of God, but also honoring the people who penned the text and respecting um, who they were and as they were let's just use the words called by God to pen these things down to solidify the Torah and solidify the, the Hebrew uh, Bible that we would call it. Um, there's a great respect there that we, you know, when we just think that they were historians that were writing down, you know, events of time, there are those types of things in the Bible, but to just remain there and to say there's no other greater beautiful meaning um it's it's just devalues or is disrespectful to to the text but also to uh the people um when so jake and i have a friend and he uh, is a city employee a city official and we were having lunch with this person once and he all of a sudden says, well, I'm going to a dinner tonight. And we're like, Oh, that's cool. Who are you having dinner with? Blah, blah, blah. And so we're, we're just talking and he reveals that it's in celebration to the festival of booths. And I, I was taken back. I had never ever met anyone who, and I don't have a, a ton of Jewish friends. I've had Jewish friends, but even my Jewish friends back in the day, um, you know, in school and such, that I knew were Jewish, uh, they I'd never heard of them celebrating the festival of booths that they would have, you know, an actual dinner in a tent or in a like covering, and that would be their celebration. I was just enamored. Please tell me more about this. I want to know more about this. And the way that he described it and what they did was very simple. It wasn't just some elaborate story. But what I discovered in that discussion is when you practice something over and over and over and over again, like Passover, like the Festival of Booze, like communion that we do in church and such, when we practice something over and over and over again, that is years, centuries, millennia long, it becomes very real to you now. And I think that that's the importance here, that this story is very real and true 
for us now. And it's not just some ancient story that, you know, some, you know, placed in some historical place and time. It is, but it's not just that. It's more than that. It's very real and speaking to us in a very meaningful way mm-hmm. now. Or not, like Canaanite, Canaanite laws were from four Canaanite regions for Canaanite situations. But but uh, this kind of story is what they call a recreation retelling. And every time you see a recreation retelling in scripture, there's great meaning behind that. There's great value behind that. And so the reason why this is considered a recreation retelling is in creation narrative in Genesis, in the creation narrative, you see very signature events like six days of creation, seventh day rested. That's a rhythm. That's a timbre. That's work, 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 and Sabbath, right? So that's a, that's a, a relationship to work and rest where then you wake up on the next day of work and you are rested so you can work from your rest and such. You're resting from work, working from rest. And that's a rhythm of life that the Jews or the Hebrew people and then the Jews had. So, so that is every time you work, 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 work and rest, it's a recreation story in your own life. Chaos to order. That's another signature idea in creation where we're moving from chaotic, like voids and chaotic waves and oceans and and land and 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 sea and sky and heavens and we see chaos to order every time you see that either in your own life or in your scripture that is a recreation retelling so like with noah we have now the waters of the deep and then we see the land the waters reside the land appears from now we have from chaos to order it's a recreation retelling. So all of the plagues, the bugs, the boils, all of the, the, uh, the blood, the bugs, the blood, the bugs, the blood, the boils, right? All of those plagues is the chaos now moving towards order. And, and so we're going to talk about some of those things, but remember every time you Every time you practice something over and over in a recreation sense, recreation becomes very real to you. And I think that's the honor to the Jewish people is they have celebrated some of these festivals for so long that they're preserved, number one, um, and carried forward in in new ways. I think that's important just to you know kind of put a put an emphasis on that. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So there's two signature things that we're going to bring up in this uh, story and water and the ark. Those are two ideas that are very seamless through scripture. And so let's go from Genesis to revelation with water. Um, if we can. And then we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation with the Ark. So Jake, start to take water and we'll just popcorn through the idea of water. Uh, I think it 
when we start Genesis and Exodus were written to be read together. Mm -hmm. And so the motifs will transfer from one book to the next. Right. And then other writers throughout, throughout time will take those motifs and, and push them forward. And so in Genesis, the first, the first image you have is of God's spirit hovering over the chaos water in the deep. And so it is a primordial substance that will transfer all over scripture. So you have that, Mm -hmm. then you move into out of Eden flows the four rivers. Mm -hmm. And so we pull humanity out of that, out of the water into the land. Moving on, then you have Noah and the ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Abraham crossing over uh, the Tigris Euphrates, going into the promised land. You have Abraham going down to Egypt, having to cross the Reed and Red Sea, and then back up again. And so those are also times of of birth and and, and rebirth and recreation. And you get jo- into Joshua. Hmm? Well, you Moses next. Oh, Mo- I'm mm-hmm. sorry. You're going in, in order. Okay. I was trying to. Should I keep going? Yeah, in order? sorry. Okay. Well, you have Jacob going down into in Israel. His son's going down into Egypt. Moses coming yeah. back out. Mm-hmm. Joshua crossing the Jordan. Mm-hmm. You have you have other judges and prophets that use water as a recreation motif as well. What's really interesting, if you pause there, I think that uh, I think that movies and folklore, but also something very important here. Moses crosses the Red Sea, um, but then Joshua and the Israelites also cross the Jordan River in the same fashion. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting to me is Moses is remembered and celebrated, but we don't think a lot about Joshua crossing over into the crossing over the Jordan river crossing the red sea was to escape evil. Crossing over the Jordan was to enter the promise. And so, so I, I, I just wonder why that one wasn't, you know, th- th- a theatrical presentation on the movie screen where, you know, Josh was just forgotten. Many people don't even remember that Joshua actually crossed and God split the waters over the Jordan crossing into the promise. Mm-hmm. So one could be, you know, as a metaphor, but one without the other is not a complete metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, then you move into the New Testament, and, and then you have the start of Jesus' ministry is with water turning into wine. Mm-hmm. And the end of Jesus' ministry is the stab in the side and water pours out. Mm-hmm. I think I'll stop there. Uh, we also had Jesus walking on water. That's true. That's a good one. We also had in Revelation the waters of the bowl, the pool in front of the uh, the altar, the, throne. the pool, the throne. 
um, is still. So the water is still. So there's water representation. So we know that water is an important metaphor in scripture. There's the washing of water where before you would go into the temple or, or tabernacle, you would wash with water. So water has always been a cleanser. Like we just physically, scientifically, we know that, that water is, you know, can be a cleanser. Um, can purify things. And so religiously or spiritually, there's a metaphor of cleansing. There's a metaphor of washing. So the washing of water through through baptism, the washing of water through the J ritual, uh, the Jewish ritual before entering the temple uh, to worship. Any more water, Shreya? Um, there's often significant events occurring around wells. Mm, yes. And that happens um, in the Old Testament. We have several marriages that happen because of well encounters. Mm -hmm. um, but then it also happens often in the New Testament where Jesus meets people at a well. The leader, the king would meet his bride at the well in the Old Testament. That's mm -hmm. why they think or they've, they've thought that the woman at the well, there was like a, a weirdness going on there. It's like, okay, what is Jesus? There's betrothal language there. Mm -hmm. And so she was a Samaritan and the woman at the well had five husbands and the, the, uh, the Samaritans were five different tribes of Samaritans were put in that area. And so you've had five husbands, those five tribes or yeah. And this, and the sixth your, your husband now is not your husband, um, and seventh, Jesus is the seventh. So sixth is the Jews, seventh is Christ. I'm at the woman at the well. So there's a huge metaphor of the woman at the well. I just want to add on that one. That's a lot. You have baptism as well. I didn't talk about that one mm -hmm. as a metaphor, as an overarching metaphor for all of these that... Mm -hmm. It is through baptism that we are recreated. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the Israelites leaving Egypt, that is a baptism metaphor. Mm. Um, in Isaiah 8, you have the water that flows from Shiloh. Mm -hmm. Um words can be healing like proverbs words come from a man's uh heart as deep waters um isaiah is the uh is out of the line of the house of jacob is out of the line of uh waters ezekiel 47 is the vision shows water flowing from the altar of the temple so there's lots of metaphor of of water, which then you could say cleansing from sin. You could say salvation. You could say redemption. Mm -hmm. And you can say recreation. So in scripture, when you see water, that's an important signal to say what's going on here that's a deeper meaning and understanding. And God's splitting the water. Well, just like Noah is referenced in the Peter uh, verse of 
just like you know Noah is saved through water, so you too are saved through baptism. So we see these the splitting of water, the salvation of humankind happens through this metaphor of of water. But with water, you need a boat. And that brings us to the ark. <laughs> so let's talk about from Genesis to Revelation, the ark. Yeah. So Trey, we, we see the ark show up first. Yes. With Noah. Mm -hmm. um, and so Noah and his family and the animals are, are saved through destruction. Um, mm -hmm. And then we also have the ark show up again with Moses. Moses is placed in an ark um, as all of the Hebrew male babies are being killed. Um, and he is saved. Um, we then have um, the creation of the Ark of the Covenant, and that is taken into the Promised Land. And then it gets a little bit more abstract as we move into the New Testament, but you can see the manger that Jesus is placed in as a sort of Ark. And you could also see the tomb that Jesus is placed in as a sort of Ark. I guess you could say that the entire tabernacle or the temple could be mm -hmm. seen as, you know, carrying God. Um, God's presence, I guess, is in the ark. Correct. I mean, I, I'm just Correct, yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah. You do, you do have the ark of the covenant. Did we talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's it's too close to not draw a similarity between mm -hmm. uh, Noah, Moses, and Jesus, mm -hmm. and so there is a there's a way of Jewish interpretation. I think it's a good time to bring this up that takes stories and ideas from other texts, other ideas, and put some of the stories that they're writing currently. Hmm. And so um, we see, we saw that with Noah and when we talked about Utnapishtim and other right. flood narratives, um, the same can be said with the 10 commandments. And so Kevin, you want to take that section? Well, before we do that, there's one, there's one last arc that okay. is seen in revelation. Um, and and so continuing to what many traditional Orthodox Christians would believe in an end times or a final judgment day, final day, the ark is present at judgment. The ark is present at salvation. Peals of thunder, hailstorm, like God's word or judgment is coming. And it's coming like from the ark, from this place of God's presence. So the ark is the presence of God. So if you go into like history and you look at how they, I can't remember what you wanted me to speak to at that moment, but, but if you, if you take like where they're pulling these stories from. Halakha is what I was trying to get to, but. Yeah, Halakha, yeah. They're, they're pulling stories together and they are working out their version with their God. And so I can probably guarantee that I can find different water or boat or ark stories in other places in uh, different Mesopotamian or other people group 
type religious writings or 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 event writings and and what this form of water and this form of ark throughout the thread of the old and the new testament is the halakha of us taking and bringing tangible metaphor and vision to god's presence so people know what a boat looks like people know back then what an ark looks like people know what water does and is and so that is taking metaphor and ideas in tangible form and giving visual depiction of the presence of god so to say you know you just put god in a box well sometimes we need god in a box to actually visualize who god is and that's and that's the halakha working out our spirituality with all of these laws and all of these other spiritual ideas is that where is that where you wanted me to go with that i can't remember uh, what you asked me but even like extra biblical um ideas that was not written in a vacuum no mostly not written in a vacuum I would say mostly like looking at other stories and saying, okay, that's your version of the Mesopotamian flood 3000 BC or 20, 20 some odd hundred BC. <clears throat> that's your version. Okay. Well, this is our version. Our God saying our God is better. Our God is over all other gods looking at the book of the dead. Okay. That's your Decalogue. This is our Decalogue. Our God is bigger and more powerful ten commandments right yeah right yes i mean even looking at the centering text of exodus really is the the receipt of the ten commandments on sinai yeah Mm -hmm. right all the ten commandments can be found in other sources that are older than the writing of exodus Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so none of the Bible that we have was written in a vacuum. And so all of it took from sources, took from ideas, took from different cultures and time periods that we have very little connection to besides archaeology and trying to dig through the best that we can. Um, you already brought one up, the the Book of the Dead, and that, mm-hmm. that's something that if Moses was a in heir to, the, to Pharaoh, or in line to Pharaoh, Right. That Moses would have memorized the Egyptian book of the dead. Uh, it's something that you recited and chanted after you died in the tomb. And, they, and so lowered into the underworld of eternity because theirs is a lowering. Yeah. You would recite mm-hmm. dead, the Egyptian book of the dead. So you had to memorize it. And so all the Ten Commandments are found there. They're also found in in the Sherapak um, insights. So, and also when you look at Hammurabi's code, it follows very closely to the laws and the edicts that, that Moses puts over the Hebrew people. Mm-hmm. I want to take a moment though, to speak to those. So now, now that we've deconstructed some things, I think it's important to pay homage to the historical people because I, I don't think that, that a person that believes in the historical value of Exodus uh, 
is just a, a whack job. I don't think that they're crazy. I don't think that they are not believing in the same God as, as me. What I, what I would claim is when we focus on the historicity, uh, we need to pull ourselves out of that just mentality and look at the story for the story's value. Um, Yokoved. Yokoved is Moses's mother. Mm-hmm. Yokoved is the same consonants as Yahweh. And so if you look at Yokoved, that's Yahweh, God, and giving the son, Moses, and delivering Moses through an ark down a river. There's something very messianic about that, and there's something very profound about that. If you're just focused on Yochebed and the mother and Moses and the ark and this actually happening down the Reed Sea, or the, the through the reeds, the Nile, yeah. You're you're not you're not necessarily going to going to uh, see greater value if you're just focused on the historical ideas. But some people say that this is from Egyptian or Hebrew memory. And if I, if I pay homage to that and say, okay, could this be from a memory? People are in exile, in the Babylonian exile. The Jews are there. They are in captivity. Now they're just reciting from memory this story, and that's how it's going to be penned. Is there room for that? Sure, there's room for that. It would be like me trying to retell the story of the Cold War, right? And and that was long. That was long enough ago <laughs> that, or probably me trying to trying to tell something a lot older than that. But let's just say, just in my memory, the Cold War. Okay, so at what point does that story become a instead of let's you know let's not talk about you know Gorbachev and Reagan and all these people and I can name some names but the exact events of that time you know when the wall fell in 89 and I remember all of that happening but I only remember bits and pieces of it so what am I going to do if I am required or if I'm told, hey, you need to write this story down. What I'm going to do is I'm going to write the greater metaphor and meaning of that story so that when people read it, it means something to them today. So Moses, even carrying the name to come out from, Yochaved sending you know, Moses' deliverance and he's going to deliver the Israelite people out of captivity. So then just kind of place that as a as a clear plastic, you know, sheen over exile and say, does that story fit (laughs) the hope that they needed and the story that they needed for the absolutely, absolutely. And if we miss that, I think that we, um, no, we probably could probably, probably have missed the point of the entire story. Um, when we're so hunkered up, but to pay homage, there, there is a case that you can make for the history because did Egypt write down an embarrassing story that they lost an epic, complete epic loss 
right, for the Egyptian people, and they weren't going to write that down? Yeah, there's a case for that. Is there a stone obelisk type thing that says there are Israelite people? Yes. Why would they have written that down? There's a void of evidence or a void of writing, carving that says that this occurred. It's a pretty weak case to build that this is a historical story. But I'm going to give, before we totally deconstruct it, I'm going to give room that if you believe and you want to believe, just, just I'm not going to take your Jesus away. Don't take mine either. Don't take my Jesus away either. So we still can believe in Jesus and, and claim that we're going to heaven. I have some views on heaven too, if I could share later. But, but, if we, but if we, you know, if we don't discount our salvation because we believe different things, then I, then I think we're going to be okay. Shrey, you look like you need to say something right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, my best guess is that there's something historical in these stories because if if you're trying to preserve culture and inspire hope of liberation someday yeah i don't think you're going to make up something new and be like this is our origin story it's right. going to come from something that you've had for years um right. so there's something there we just can't know what it is Yeah, it's impossible to know. It's impossible to know. We have no evidence. And so what makes a better story? This made the better story. Yeah. And so but the one that promised liberation. The one that promised liberation, the one that was probably told. I mean, why not? In order for mm -hmm. it to be written down, it had to have been corporate knowledge. Mm -hmm. Or else it'd be rejected. Right. But was it unless it was written about the current times yes. and it was new writing. Yeah. But was it to the extent any like the, the mass that they're claiming everything mm -hmm. points, everything points to no. but yeah. was there people from the East Egypt, Egypt and that's kind of North East kind of. Yeah. Um, but what makes a better story? Right. I think when you're trying what? so hard to prove it historical, you mm -hmm. miss you miss the greater motifs of what's actually trying to be communicated. Right. And if we place this story in the time of exile, it's a writer trying to give the exiles hope to return to the promised land. Yeah. Um, there's a big push to get uh, Hebrew people back to their land, especially through Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. And so if we place that text writing in those periods, that was the message that people needed to hear. I don't know one conservative or progressive Christian that would discount the promised land as not a metaphor of heaven. In the New Testament. 
that the that the metaphor of heaven, that promised land of milk and honey that the Jews experienced is God's safety, protection, presence in heaven. I really have never read anybody that has discounted that. And so if promised land can be heaven, metaphorically, why can't captivity, water, running from Egyptians, why can't that be a metaphor too? The whole thing. So, so I just wanted just to, what I wanted to make sure that we paid homage to is we just deconstructed in about 10 minutes, we deconstructed the entire book of Exodus, even taking the, the metaphor of water and threading it through Genesis to Revelation, Ark threading it through Genesis to Revelation, bringing in all of these other books, the Halakha, and then, you know, now this is our interpretation of the story, right? And so we basically deconstructed what many traditional Christians or conservative Christians would, would claim as the word of God story of Exodus. And so I just wanted to make sure that we're, we're leaving room for, for that idea or that belief that we're not just, you know, discounting it com completely. But I take, I sometimes, I, I only take that so far because some people would say, well, you're, you know, you're making the Exodus story a, a historical myth, which that's what it, you know, like even farther, just myth, right? Some people would say that I'm, I'm doing that. At what point does Jesus just become a myth or, or not literary myth, but a fake story or just a story of a story? Um, fantasy. Does that, does that make you're, sense? You're, I think you're trying to say like myth to fantasy. Right. And yeah, because so, myth is an actual term for for literature. So, so at what point does Exodus and Jesus become a fantasy story that, that somebody just made up? I only I only take that making a metaphor out of something just so far because I I, I it does it's not necessary. But the meaning of the text does not change if you view it as a myth. Or as a fantasy. Right. 100%. Even the story of Jesus. Right. If it is a complete metaphor. Right. The fan, Even if it's complete fantasy, mm -hmm. the meaning of the story is still the same. Right. It's when we start to try to, in our very Western context, place these stories on a historical timeline. Mm -hmm. A point in time, a point in history. That's yeah. when we deviate from what the author was intending to do, I think, which was to inspire hope to people to return. It wasn't, it wasn't to write down their, their national history. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that later. And there is context to it, to a national history throughout uh, Joshua and Judges. Yet... Um, that was more of how should when you go when you're in Joshua judges how should we act when we get there right it's let's leave so how should we act when we get there 
any other thoughts before we move on to we got 20 minutes left so we're just looking at a couple more sections here any additional thoughts on what we just talked about let's keep going okay, okay. so exodus is divided into two main parts you have everything before god takes them out of egypt and you have everything after god takes them out of egypt and so the first handful of chapters basically 1 through 15 is all that happened leading up to the the splitting of the red sea and the red sea and then after they leave is 16 through 40. and what's really interesting i find is that that if you look at just the timeline of things in exodus 19 right at that at that chapter um, which is after the splitting of the red sea they camp out so they're camped at that point in their tents and they stay there until leviticus and so all the way through leviticus they don't leave basically until numbers 10. Hmm. but between and peter ends says this between exodus 19 and numbers 10 is one year so that whole season of or that whole all those scriptures between the second half of exodus and numbers 10 which is a lot of i would say detail and arduous material sometimes to read and get through that's only in chronological time frame in the narrative that is only one year so there's detail there that slows down and there's meaning there's deep meaning between exodus 19 and forward there's deep meaning the dramatic you know hollywood version of exodus most often stops at exodus the, the splitting of the red sea they cross they're mm -hmm. saved Woohoo! we get onto the other side and so that's that's you know that's usually where everyone everyone stops but then there's all of this i would say law negotiation and interpretation post the crossing of the red sea so give me your opinion because i don't know right now but i want us to to just think deeply why do you think that is why after the drama we get this slow arduous like time afterwards what do you think's going on there um two things i feel like one they're having to figure out when they leave this culture how to reestablish their own culture mm -hmm. and so a lot um daniel erlander calls it the school of wilderness and so they're reteaching themselves how to how to leave captivity and to no longer uh, be pharaonic or pharaohs in their own land and life and so mm -hmm. you had a group of people that had nothing had to only rely on on god for food and sustenance um that 
they were relearning how to be a nation of God. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I think it's, it's a rest period that we have. Like they, they, they could not produce at all during this period of time. Mm -hmm. And so you had Egypt where they're completely into production mode to the point of death. And then you enter into the promised land, which does come with it work on a cycle of rest, but there is a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is a, it's a healing, it's a healing and a reformative time for, for Israel. Right. And if this is being written and compiled during the exile, then it's not just about how do we, how do we live after leaving Egypt? It's about how do we live after we leave Babylon? Mm -hmm. Let me throw out something because I have to research this a little bit. I, I haven't. Do you think that this second half was compiled, written after Babylon? Or as Babylon was coming to a close? I, th I would place all the writings of this in a effort through Ezra, Elijah, to get people, Elijah, um, Ezekiel, to get people back to the promised land. So maybe this was written as they had the hoped, more hope to return? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't think it'd be written if there's no hope. Right. Yeah. Because just the whole timbre writing feel of the second half is much different than the first. Yeah, much less dramatic, but what's more important? Yeah. It wasn't about writing a bestseller. It was about establishing identity. Right. Well, and this is also take two, right? <laughs> we, had, we had the Assyrians before. Yeah. Right? In 722, now 586, 87. Now we have take two. So the, the two different areas, I get that. But they would have known about it if they were awake. So, so I would say that as they're coming out, they probably, I mean, my inclination would be, let's, let's make sure that we are not acting in a way that it, it's like it's like they the the wars that were started in um samuel like all the drama in the samuels it's because they didn't have a blacksmith they didn't have weapons that a blacksmith would have made and so just annihilation everywhere um so let's put in place some very tangible, very tangible ideas and, and practices that will help bolster and strengthen us mm -hmm. versus just being this weak empire or this weak, uh, this weak community, this nation. Probably, probably what they thought a king would have given them. You know, if we could establish a king, we would be stronger. If we could have a king, we would be better. Just probably a natural inclination of 
trying to put rules, regs, leadership, and structure in place so that we, um, you know, we can withstand another Babylon, whatever that may be. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I, it, I think it is a is a reorientating text. It. And and Shere is pushing like the national narrative forward and and a yeah identity. I think the text of identity. Uh, mm-hmm. Without that, we lose the impact. Right. Right. Without a strong identity, I mean, people can be mowed over um, and and have a weak identity. But the stronger your identity is, just the persona or the the um, perception is that you're a strong people because you have a strong identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a couple more things to go over. So, so we have some big ideas, some big thoughts through scripture. And so one of those is <clears throat> our God is superior to all other gods. So let's detail that out to make sure that we get those details in place. So the first is like the plagues. Who who wants to take the plagues and kind of explicate those or just just a short little explanation of the plagues? Yeah, I can do that. Um, okay. So each of the plagues um, that happen in Egypt correspond with at least one Egyptian god. So um, like there's a god over the Nile. So when the water... God turns the water into blood. It is a victory over the God who rules the Nile. Um, there's, gosh, I'm trying to remember some of the specifics, but like gods that rule we fertility go, or the, the crops, right? On our last podcast, right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all there. But each of these plagues is a victory, God's victory over the Egyptian gods. Also smoke and fire too. Yeah. And the last plague is darkness and death. And so that was Ra. Mm-hmm. And I forget the other one, but even the, the Pharaoh, man, God of I the think. sun and light. Yeah. God and Pharaoh. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so even with Pharaoh being, the, I think uh, the child of light, uh, we see God is bigger than even Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's um that's in the story. Pharaoh realizes that. Yeah, yeah. And that's in the why narrative, it's a release. Yeah, right. Well, there is a god of fire, and there's also a god of smoke. Mm-hmm. And so the Sekhmet god of fire, and then there's another that's a god of smoke. So the pillar of fire and smoke that are leading them in the wilderness. That carries forward. Because yeah. um, eventually, I'm sure that the strongest army in all of that area, right? if they really wanted to go after the Israelite people, they could have figured that out. I'm sure that not all of them perished in the Red, in the Red Sea. So, so I'm sure that they could have tooled up again and gone after them again, especially the amount of time that they spent in the wilderness. It wasn't that far away. So, but the pillar of fire and smoke was another like metaphor that, 
our God is still with us. This strong God is better than, is bigger than your gods. I think in Genesis and Exodus, all the way through, presupposes that there are other gods. <laughs> it's just Yahweh is bigger than all other gods. Mm. So in Egyptian mythology, you have the god of smoke and mist. Excuse me, the god of fog and mist, the god of fire, the god of smoke. You have the god, uh, the goddess of fire. You have the god of air. You have the god of the frogs. You have the god of the the uh, flies. And then you have the god of smells. Hmm. The god of smells. And I just wanted to look up really quick. Um, I am sure that boils and blood. Wow, that is loud, whoever that is. They all smelled, right? They all smelled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I am sure that that pungent odor um, probably was also, uh, could be, um, could, could connect with their god of smells. Their god of smell. Mm -hmm. yeah. But one of the big ideas in the the plagues or in this idea is 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 Yahweh is bigger. Yahweh is better. Yahweh is um the one and only God, Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So that that idea that that God is superior, I guess, than the other gods. But remember that in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall worship no other gods before me. So there's an assumption there in that commandment that there are other gods. And so that assumption in that sentence is, is not, to, or that, that statement is not to say, you know, you, you're going to do, and also God's jealousy of idol worship. So the idea of jealousy of idol, why would God be jealous of idol worship, right? when there's no other gods. So there are other gods that people are worshiping. God is just saying, no other gods before me. And that's established in this, uh, in this plague uh, pericope, where, not pericope, but motif, story. I guess, yeah. story, that, uh, that, that these represent gods. It's just, don't put these gods above me yeah we already went over the other big idea of recreation but then after the coming out of egypt crossing the red sea they camp out at the mountain and this is god of the mountain is the next idea and the big idea of god of the mountain if you look at mount sinai there were there were other bigger mountains and Close. so they believe that God lived up on top of the mountains. Their gods lived in mountainous regions, mm -hmm. but Mount Sinai is, is not that big of a mountain. 
Any other yeah. thoughts on God of the Mountain? <laughs> um, the holy places were high. Right. And um, to to put your holy place lower is and not be in the highest peak wasn't a yeah. I think a a thought that that God was doing God's best to engage with with the people. Mm. I'd also include that that God being on a lower mountain, but also just the mountain of Mount Sinai, just the whole concept is a is a foreshadowing of is that the word foreshadowing of the tabernacle or really the 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 ark of the covenant the presence of god and so god's presence is on a mountain but but now god is present more amongst the people as as jake is saying that people can be in the presence of god and those that navigate through the divine and the human right and so so the priest can navigate from divine to human so the priest becomes the curator or the protector of the temple navigating through two spots but god is god has actually always been seen in high places this is why shred uh jump in there what is it um, yeah uh psalm 121 says yeah. um i lift my eyes up to the mountains where does my help come from my help right. comes from the mountains because that's where god lives right so god has always been seen in this higher place in this mountainous place the presence of the lord so you then project that forward and jesus is crucified on a hill or a or a mountain and so just the idea of being high and lifted up i think that's in luke high and lifted up is the crucifixion being high and lifted up that we're looking up to to god it's it's you know because jesus could have probably been flogged to death on the floor and buried and rose again so i mean like like it it why did jesus have to be crucified right he could have been could have died during the whipping right because lots of people did so why didn't that happen i think the whole idea of jesus being crucified is that god is in a higher Don't higher place this is where our snake. versions of heaven come from that god has to be up there don't forget the, the snake on the staff well, that's another God idea that that God is. Where were, where were you headed with that? That uh, one of the reasons that Jesus was crucified in, in narrative was to mimic Moses's mm -hmm. raising of the snake on the staff when they were bit by the snakes. That they would look right. to, they would look to the snake and be healed. And so right. we look we look up to the cross right. to be healed that's what to be healed right so so all of those things tie together as there is a great messianic you could say prophecy but messianic overtone moving towards now um 
looking for the Messiah because Jews wanted that Messiah. The, the Hebrew people knew about that Messiah. So there's a great messianic message moving forward now in the text uh, through the tabernacle, through the times of building the temple, leading up to um, the Maccabean Wars, leading right into um, the first century and looking for that Messiah. There was lots of prophetic, but also um, fake and non non uh, messianic figures that were faking to be um, messiahs as well, that there was a great push to find the Messiah. So the idea of then carrying forward these metaphors in some of the intertestament times, but then also the apocryphal writings and stuff, you'll see a lot of tying together of these kinds of metaphors into more modern texts. So the book of Exodus, metaphor, recreation, Yahweh is bigger than all other gods and God of the mountain looking up, uh, where does my help come from? Salvation is found in God. And we see that through water. We see that through the ark. We see that through the cross. We eventually see that through the tomb. Ultimately in Revelation, we see that at the throne and the water, the stillness of the pool. Mm-hmm. All right. With that, thanks both of you for joining and giving input on Exodus. We have an entire series of Exodus listed on this podcast series. If you just go to Resonate uh, CC's um, uh, podcast YouTube channel, you can find it there and scroll down. It was over a year ago. Um, You can scroll down and find the Exodus series where we just take story by story, frame by frame, and we walk through the entire book of Exodus. We hope that you listen to that. So with that, good night, everybody.